0: And so as I'm just going to kind of recap, you know, as Solomon died in about 970 BC, uh, his son Rehoboam succeeds him. Um, Israel is divided. He ends up, he decided, you know, he is going to kind of increase the, the taxes and, and the forced labor that uh, that Solomon had put on the, the nation. As we know, the northern tribes uh away, and he's just left with Judah and Benjamin. And during this time, we see Judah fighting with Israel, we see him fighting with Egypt, and kind of there's, it's just a time of of turmoil. And some of the kings uh, during this time, like the king of Asa, uh, lead revivals, and they draw the nation back into covenant relationship with God. Um, And in the as Graham said in the northern kingdom all of the all of the kings were bad, all the kingdoms were evil in god 's eyes, but in the the kingdom of Judah um, in their their history, there are twenty kings, and eight of them were supposed to, were said to have been good in god 's eyes, so eight is better than zero, um, so a little over half of them were still evil but the, there were eight kings that would try to draw the people back into covenant relationship with God. They would try to get them to the people to turn away from their idol worship and, and their paganism. And after the fall of Israel in 722 BC, when the Assyrians came in and took the uh, uh, the nation of Israel into into captivity or, or kind of into back to Assyria, they. Uh, there were there were eight kings between the, the fall of Israel to the fall of Judah. And two of these guys were were good kings. The first one that we want to talk about is this, the king Hezekiah. And then in a little bit, we're going to talk about King Josiah. And during this time, at, kind of right before and just after the fall of Israel, Micah, the, the prophet comes and he is prophesying he confronts Israel and Judah with their sin he explains that the, the Assyrian invasion is coming, that it is going to be a judgment from God um, and as we know the Israelites the nation of Israel did not pay any attention, they carried on doing their own thing and Assyria comes in and crushes Israel. Now Micah, he prophesied and he uh, spoke to the nation of Judah during the reign of King Hezekiah, who was one of the good kings. And Hezekiah, he drew people back to God. He got rid of um, paganism. He got rid of the high places. He, he wanted to get rid of all of the idols that were causing Israel to stumble. And one of the things that I think is interesting that he got rid of, that he destroyed, was the bronze serpent of Moses. And if you remember way back uh, as the Israelites were leaving Egypt, um, and they were with Moses, they ended up in a place with all, the, with all these snakes and uh, Moses lifted up this bronze serpent and anybody who looks at the serpent uh, would, wouldn't would die from the poisonous snake bites. And so this bronze serpent was still around, but the Israelites had started worshiping it and so he got rid of that as well. He, Hezekiah, reestablished the, the service of the temple and he realized that the reason the nation of Judah and the reason that the nation of Israel Israel had been in so much trouble was because they had turned away from the Lord. And so he brings uh, a revival and a restoration to the land of Judah. And we believe that the prophet Micah certainly helped him um, to stimulate this revival. And during the time of the kings, during the time of the United Kingdom that that Graham mentioned, we see um, a number of prophets rise up during this time. We see uh, Isaiah um, began to reign during the reign of Uzziah, who was one of the kings of Judah, and he, Isaiah, became even more influential during the the reign of Hezekiah. And Isaiah's theme was this imminent judgment, but an eventual restoration for the people of Judah. And so, in one thing that we see over and over again is that there's this imminent judgment that if people don't turn away uh, from their paganism, from faithlessness, that God is going to come. He is going to bring judgment. But there there always is a, a glimmer of hope that God will come and he will restore his people. And Isaiah is a pretty big deal. He is quoted directly in the New Testament some 50 times and he's referred to in the New Testament 250 times. And so more than any of the other prophets. And Isaiah really helped the people of Israel kind of get a picture of the, the returning Messiah, this guy that was going to come and restore them and bring his people into the promises that they were expecting. And so after taking Israel, Assyria continued on its campaign for kind of global domination, right? Once they took they, once they took. Israel, it's not like they're like, now we've got everything we want, we're gonna stop. So they were continuing on and they had their sights on Judah. And so the good King Hezekiah during this time, he, he he cries out to God and to to spare the nation of Judah and so Isaiah the prophet comes and he prophesies that Sennacherib who was the leader of the Assyrians was going to fall and we see this miraculous story of hundred and eighty-five thousand Assyrians being defeated by God and so then Sennacherib decides it's not worth it we're gonna go back to Nineveh which was the the capital of Assyria and so Judah is at this point spared from being taken over by Assyria and so a little bit later, we see uh, a king by the name of Manasseh rise up. And Manasseh is not one of the two good kings. He is actually an incredibly terrible king. Um, and he restores all the high places that we saw uh, Hezekiah destroy. He, he creates uh, altars to Baal. He uh, worships all the gods of Ammon and Moab and Edom and all these other nations that are around the nation of Judah. He put images of other gods in the temple that Solomon had built, and he persecuted all the prophets that God sent uh, to rebuke him and to, to encourage him to turn from his, his uh, faithlessness and return to covenant relationship with God. And Manasseh tradition holds that Manasseh actually had Isaiah sawn in two um, and because he didn't, uh, didn't really appreciate what Isaiah was telling him. Um, And this is what God says about bad king Messiah, Manasseh. Bad king Manasseh, excuse me, Messiah's good. (laughs) Messiah good, Manasseh bad. Um, Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than the Amorites who preceded him and has led Judah into sin with his idols. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I'm going to bring such a disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of enemies. And we, so we see... This is not a very positive prophecy for the, the nation of Judah and King Manasseh. He's saying that, you know, the same thing that happened to, to Israel is going to happen to you. He talks about the plumb line measured uh, against Samaria. And Samaria is this nation, is this area just uh, above Judah where Israel was. And when, when all the Israelites were taken into Assyria, Assyria kind of repopulated some, uh, the, that area with Other peoples from places that they'd taken over, and so we see the 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 area, the region of Samaria, and Samaria is going to become more and more important, especially um, as we get to uh, later on in this story, and especially in the New Testament. um, Graham was talking about how when people would move into an area, they would you know they would worship whatever God whose land they are on. And so we have these pagans coming into the land of Israel. So they kind of worshipped God. They kind of worshipped Yahweh, but they also worshipped their other gods. So it was this weird uh, kind of mixture of religions. And so the Jewish people have always looked down on the Samaritans. And so this is kind of, we see the beginnings of that here in the time of Manasseh, or prophesied about during the time of Manasseh. And so after Manasseh, we have Josiah comes on the scene and he is the next king and he is one of the two good kings of Judah and Josiah is very good very very good and he's um, he leads an amazing renewal of the covenant and um, after discovering the law during some renovations in the temple um, Manasseh had tried to destroy all the the copies of the law all the copies of the Pentateuch and so it wasn't it wasn't easy people didn't have the the Torah anymore and so Josiah is returning the people back into covenant relationship and they're doing some renovations on the temple and they find the book of the law and some people think it was the, the whole Pentateuch. Some people think it may have just been the book of Deuteronomy. But regardless of which one it was, the Manasse- or, excuse me, Josiah reads it, and he, he realizes just how far the, the nation had, had fallen from the expectations of the law. And so he goes in and he cleans uh, the temple out of everything that was dedicated to other gods, he got rid of the priests that the other kings had hired to burn incense to Baal throughout the land. He cuts down Asherah poles. He gets rid of the shrine prostitutes. He gets rid of this altar to the god Molech, who parents would bring their children and sacrifice their children to this god Molech. He gets, he gets rid of that. He gets rid of the altars in the palace. And as you read Second Kings uh, chapter 23 and, and just list all the, the cleansing and all the stuff, that King Josiah did to purify the land you just you see wow it is amazing how far the land of Judah had fallen from the expectations and this is what God says in 2 Kings about Josiah and he says I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read so uh, he'd found this book he'd read it and God is not You know, God had already told during Manasseh's time that he is bringing judgment. And so he says, I am going to bring judgment, and now you know why. Because you have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods and aroused my anger by all the idols their hands have made. My anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Because your, he's talking to Josiah, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore I will gather you to your ancestors, and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. And so we see God speaking to Josiah, that he's like, You know what, I still am gonna I still have to bring judgment because of how far every, you know things have fallen with you know and what happened with King Manasseh but because of your faithfulness I'm going to let you live in a time of peace and I'll just go ahead and bring that disaster after that and so so Nahum uh, is another prophet that you can read his book in the Old Testament and he spoke of the fall of Nineveh he's prophesying during Josiah's time and he prophesies about the fall of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, which was the the world power of this time. And so this probably seemed like a pretty crazy prophecy, that this would, that somehow Assyria would fall seems highly unlikely. And then Zephaniah, another prophet during this time, he comes and he speaks uh, of the, the coming day of the Lord, when God would severely punish the nations, including Judah. But again, in his prophecy, we see this glimmer of hope that God is going to come and punish the nations, including Judah, but yet he is going to be merciful to his people. So continually, there is this, this glimmer of hope, this possibility that God is going to be faithful to the covenant and to the promises that he made to his people. And so 2 Kings wraps up Josiah's life with this. It says that neither before or after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. And so we see, and it says, you know, before or after, there's never a king like him. So not even David. You know, so Josiah must have been something, you know, spectacular. And God just honors him, you know, by speaking, you know, this this about him. But then in the very next verse, he says, Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn away from the heart or from the heat of his fierce anger, which burned against Judah, because all that Manasseh had done to arouse His anger. And so there's still this imminent judgment waiting um, uh, coming to the land of Judah. And after Josiah dies, we see a succession of evil kings. And we see exactly what Nahum had prophesied. We see the Babylonians come in and take over um, kind of the the national, or the, the, what would you call it, kind of the, the major power in the world. They replaced Assyria as kind of the major power in the world. And the leader of Babylon is Nebuchadnezzar. And he comes and he invades the land of Judah. There we go. Um, and so Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he uh, attacks Judah. Daniel is taken into captivity. There's a, the book of Daniel. Uh, that character is taken into captivity. And Judah becomes a vassal of, of Babylon for three years. They pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. And one of the, these kings that came up after Josiah, King Jehoiakim, he uh, decides that you know I I think I'm going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar and the prophet Jeremiah um, who who has is another one of the major prophets that we read about. The prophet Jeremiah warns him and says, don't don't rebel uh, against uh, against Babylon. It's a really bad idea. This is a judgment from God. You just need to just kind of just kind of relax and just let this let this happen because there's nothing you can do to stop this. But Jehoiakim decides that he is going to uh, rebel anyway, and Nebuchadnezzar does not take kindly to this, so what he does is he comes and he completely crushes Jerusalem. He plunders the temple. He takes everything out of the temple. He destroys the temple. He destroys the city of Jerusalem. He destroys the palace and takes almost everybody that's left in Jerusalem and Judah into captivity, into Babylon. And he leaves just a few of the incredibly poor people in the land of Judah. And so if we read the, the prophet Jeremiah, we think, you know, this is what, this is the period that Jeremiah is speaking into. Uh, he began prophesying during Josiah's reign, and he he warned Judah uh, and just told them, just submit to Babylon. This is God's judgment. But after they are taken into captivity, we see kind of a, a change in Jeremiah's uh, words in in his book, and it's a a word of encouragement and uh, a promise that God is going to bring his people back to the land and he's going to make a new covenant with his people. So again, everything seems terrible for the land of Judah, but Jeremiah, we see uh, this continued glimmer of hope and so this happens in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon comes and crushes Jerusalem and it must have seemed pretty much like the end for all the exiled survivors of Judah you know everything seemed lost the the temple was destroyed Jerusalem was destroyed the Davidic line of kings was finished and the people were forced out of, of the land promised to God and so the the thread that we've been seeing we've been following through the story of the Bible was that God was going to create a nation he was going to put them in um, the land that he promised them and they were going to be a blessing to the nations Uh, and we see what seems to be every uh, idea that that is going to be fulfilled become destroyed as they are taken out of the land and the kingship is destroyed and everything is over but we see uh, the prophet Jeremiah, who is still back in Judah or possibly in Egypt during this time, he says this in his prophecy, and this is going to be pretty, pretty uh, uh, familiar to you guys probably. Uh, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, Plans to give you hope and a future, and so this is pretty common. You know, I, uh, you know, I hold on to this promise. You know, it's so it's so encouraging for us today. But when we see, you know, where where the people of Jerusalem or the where the people of Israel were when this prophecy was spoken, I think we get a, even a bigger picture, a bigger understanding of what exactly God is saying here. You know, everything was lost. They weren't in their own homes. They weren't in the city. Uh, of Jerusalem. They weren't in the land God had promised. They were actually captives and slaves in a foreign country. And yet, God comes to them and says, you know, I know the plans I have for you. I have a plan to prosper you and to take care of you. You know, and it just is, it kind of reiterates this idea that we see throughout the Bible that God is continually asking his people, he's like, will you, will you take me at my word? Will you trust me? Will you believe me and will you follow me where I lead you? And so often we see the Israelites are faithless and they turn away from God. And yet here is God, even now, even in their darkest hour, offering and saying, Will you trust me? Will you you take me at my word? Will you believe that my heart is for you? And it's really, really powerful. And I think that's you know, one of the, uh, the benefits of, of a class like this. It gives us an, uh, an opportunity to understand you know, where these books were written and what uh, these prophets uh, were speaking into and what the situations were. And it just gives us a much uh, broader and greater understanding of, of, of what the Bible is actually saying. And then uh, there's another prophet during this time, and the, the prophet Ezekiel. And he went with the... Uh, exiles into Babylon, and this is what Ezekiel says. He, for this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they are scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. And so we again, we see Ezekiel kind of prophesying into this dark and uh, discouraging place, but he, they, he shows a picture of Father God as this shepherd who is going to come and he's going to find all his scattered sheep who are in you know d- dispersed throughout the the known world here, and he says that I'm going to come and I'm going to find you and I'm going to bring you back home and I'm going to rescue you. It's an amazing, beautiful prophecy. So, and so so that was Ezekiel, who is speaking to the the Babylonian captives, and they both have a similar message, they're both talking to, to submit to Babylon, that this exile is God's punishment, and that God is not going to leave them there, but he is going to come and rescue them, and so they, and as Jeremiah said, that it's going, to, he prophesied that the exile was going to last for 70 years, and so he said, just submit, and just kind of, just kind of go with this, and the In in the exile, it's not like they were slaves uh, like they were in Egypt, but they had been deported. They had been forced out of their land, and they they actually were able to to own homes and to to have jobs and, and live life. But there was something inside of the Israelites that yearned to be back in that place that God had promised to them promised them. They, just, they didn't want to be living in some strange foreign land under some strange foreign king. Their heart was to be living in the, the promises that, that God had promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. You know, we're, we're hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years from that, but their heart is still to, to get back to the land that God had promised them. And the, the prophet. Uh, they can see that there is this hope that God will come back. God will restore us. He is going to. He is going to take care of us. And so, during this time uh, of the Babylonian exile, we'd mentioned I'd mentioned that uh, the book of that Daniel had been taken into captivity, and it is at this point that Daniel uh, kind of speaks of during this uh, this exile. And the book of Daniel records the history. Of, of this guy, Daniel, and how he w- served the the king of Babylon, and it's also a very prophetic book, um, and it has, it's a very prophetic book, I'm just gonna cut it, there. sorry. So, good book. Go ahead and read that one. Um, so, and so as, pro- as prophesied by Jeremiah, the exile lasts for 70 years. And then, uh, another shocking twist, the the nation of of Babylon, the Empire of Babylon is overthrown by the nation of of Persia and so Persia becomes the major power in in the known world and luckily for the Jewish people the Persians had a much different outlook on how they um, treated the, the kingdoms in the lands that they had controlled. Okay, And so the, the Bible records that the, the king of Persia, his name is Cyrus, says that the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. And so, so this is obviously a complete change from how the Babylonians did things. They pulled people out of their lands, um, but the kings of Persia, they said, no, go ahead and go back, and I he even goes so far to say that God has appointed me to build him a temple. So he actually gives the exiles a bunch of money and some resources and sends them on their way back to Jerusalem. And so in 538 B.C., about 70 years after they had been forced out by Nebuchadnezzar, this guy named Zerubbabel uh, returns with, with the first wave of returnees from, from Babylon. And Zerubbabel comes and he rebuilds the altar— Uh, they begin sacrificing again in in the land of Judah in the morning and the evening, and he starts rebuilding the temple. But after about a year or so, the people get distracted by the enemies in the lands around them, and they're kind of working on building their own homes, and they stop building the temple. And we see at this point that two prophets, especially Haggai and Zechariah, come in and they encourage the people to continue rebuilding the temple which they ev- eventually do 16 years later. And then Ezra, a, a priest and a scribe who is in Babylon, uh, he is sent back by the king of Persia to kind of see what's going on. He says, go back to Jerusalem and see uh, what's going on with the regard to the law of your God. And so Ezra uh, goes back, and when he comes there, he discovers a, a problem. The people are once again intermarrying with people uh, from from the surrounding nations and as we know this never uh, this never ends well for the Israelites when they begin intermarrying and so Ezra uh, he weeps and he prays and others join him and everybody decides we're going to get rid of our foreign wives and I think it's interesting that from from this point in in the Bible narrative we never see the the uh, the Israelites or the Jews struggle uh, like they have been with idol worship. You know, to, you know we see in, in the New Testament, the, the Pharisees and, and the Jews, they, had, they, had, they did not struggle with that. They, they had some other struggles, but not idol worship. So it seems like over the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, God has finally kind of beaten that out of them. So, um, so, they, so he kind of deals with that. And so Ezra comes and they rebuild the temple. They are, kind of renew this covenant to God, and so everything is going pretty well. But back in Babylon, back in the city of Susa, it's kind of on the eastern side of the, the Persian Empire, this guy named Nehemiah is a cupbearer of the king. And so he's this important uh, fellow. And he's talking to one of his brothers from Jerusalem. And he's asking, you know, how's things going back in Jerusalem? He's like, things aren't going very well. They still don't even have the wall built. And not having a wall might not seem significant to us, but back in, in, in this time, you know, having a wall said that, you know, they were secure and they were safe, uh, and to be a, a prominent city, you had to have a wall to keep you safe from your enemies. And so, Nehemiah goes to the king. The king lets him travel back to Jerusalem. Um, Nehemiah kind of takes takes a, a a look at things, finds that there's, there's some problems here, and so he... Um, shows amazing leadership skills and unites the the people and says we need to get this wall built back up again and so they they start working on the wall and there's this this guy by the name of Sanballat who is a governor of Samaria which is that that region just to the north of Judah and he's not very excited that Jerusalem is being rebuilt he's not really excited about what's happening down there and so he him and his friends kind of come and they start mocking the the Jews as they are rebuilding the wall and I really like this quote that he says Sanballat and his friends say what they are building even a fox climbing on it would break their walls of stone so so kind of implying that it's not a very sturdy wall just a little a little fox is going to knock that thing over um, but these, this mockery turns to threats and turns to violence and so it forces Nehemiah to kind of have the people who are rebuilding the walls, they get swords and half of them are guarding and the other half are building and they take turns. And 52, later, 52 days later, they, the, the wall in Jerusalem is rebuilt. And so things are really coming along. They've got the wall, they've got the temple, they've got the houses. Everything is kind of back in place. They're, they're only missing one component. There is no king sitting on the throne of David. And we see the prophet Malachi comes in, um, and Malachi is actually the, the final book of our Old Testament, and he is a prophet, and he is, comes and he assures the, the Jewish community that's back in Jerusalem that a Messianic king, that the promised one, is going to come to judge his people, and he's going to come and bless them and restore them. And so and this is the, the chronological end of the Old Testament. The temple is restored, the altar is restored, the wall of walls are rebuilt. The people have rededicated themselves to God, and they are waiting for the Messiah to come and uh, and so it's the through all the, the, the high points and the low points throughout the, the nation of Israel and throughout the chronological story uh, of the Old Testament, it ends on this incredibly high point. The people are back where they're supposed to be, and they're waiting for their king to return. All right. That's pretty. That's pretty good. I got through that. Alright, does anybody, uh, anybody have any questions um, or comments or thoughts about not just this section but all three sessions? Very interesting, and the same reason I, I believe that when the the people were imported into the land of Israel after Assyria that they began mixing their worship of Yahweh uh, with the worship of their gods, whoever they came with.
1: Sorry just to jump in okay. um, another Another thing that's hard for us to grasp uh, the way we think about just life and and our culture, it's really hard for us to understand just how close an association the people had with the physical land that they were in and so um, this would also happen for the Israelites so when David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem we suddenly see this name Zion appear, and that was kind of a new name that appears in um, in the Old Testament story as a way of talking about Jerusalem as the place where God himself would come and dwell and this idea for the Israelites that God himself the creator of all things that we read about in Genesis that his physical presence would be with them in Jerusalem just reinforced this connection between the Israelites and the physical land and the physical city of Jerusalem and the temple and so when the um, when those who were in the southern kingdom of Judah would hear reports about the northern kingdom of Israel they were arrogant because they would say God will never sweep us away the kingdom of Judah is safe because God's physical presence is with us. And they used that as a way to justify kind of the, the stuff that they were up to. And they said, those northern those northerners, they they went away from God's presence in Jerusalem. It wouldn't surprise us if they went into exile because they they're separate. But we're okay because we have God's presence. And this whole idea of the land and the cities and everything to do with worship and God connected with the, with the land and physical space. And we didn't really think like that. So eventually when God sends prophets and the prophets say, actually, if you keep going the way you're going, you're going to go into exile as well. The people were like, there's no way that's ever going to happen because God's presence is with us. And eventually it gets to the point where God says, I'm going to take you and my presence out of Jerusalem. And that was so completely shocking for the people of judah and then you see in exile they would start to long for the presence of god and long to be back in jerusalem if you ever read is it psalm 139 where it's like um, by the rivers of babylon we sat down and we wept when we remembered zion and there's this idea of the of the captors in in babylon during the time of ezekiel saying sing some of those songs that you would sing when you were in judah you know essentially you know sing some of your psalms sing some of your songs and they were like it it was so moving to us it reminded us of how separate we are from jerusalem that we can't worship god in jerusalem and we would say well well, they could just worship god in babylon what does it matter no it really mattered because they really believed they had to worship god in jerusalem so you see it kind of all over
0: Yeah, Esther, Esther, I think it's part of my notes that I skipped for time. Sorry about that. But Esther takes place during the exile in Babylon, and sh- it's the, the story of how God um, put her in, in the right place at the right time to save the people of Jerusalem, so, or the, the Jew, Jewish people. And so, yeah, it happens right there during the captivity of, of Bab- Babylon. Ruth fits in during Judges. Oh, we're no, you were you were on the ladder, so yeah. So Ruth shows that there was some people that were faithful to God even during the time with the judges. Diane.
1: there there is a lot of discussion as to where did those 10 tribes end up you know and um, it's it's a great question and essentially this this huge spreading of the people occurred and by the time of the New Testament um, this people that was known as the diaspora were spread out all over the place and you're right there were pockets of of people who were either of uh, descendants of um, people from from within um, 10 tribes to the north um, or by the time of christ you even have um, people who were ethnically greek um, or or from other non-jewish non-israelite descendants who actually believed in god as as the one true god and they were called god fearers and so you see an example of that in acts 10 with cornelius was a god fearer even though he wasn't descended so you do have these pockets of people spread out the temple still is like the main part of worship but you have all these other places called synagogues that pop up where people are worshiping Yahweh but it's a little bit different than you don't have that physical presence of God you don't have the holy f- you know it's not like the same idea where you have at the center of worship but they are these places where the law would have been read where people would have gathered together to pray and worship I think the main thing is the whole concept of the kingdom of Judah or the tribe of Judah like that idea kind of in some ways remains where you can trace a line from christ back all the way through to david you can trace that line all the way back as we'll see next week that's how matthew starts his gospel matthew wants to make really clear that jesus descends from david like he wants to make that point crystal clear that's why you start with genealogy you can't do that with the northern kingdom because that line breaks down you can't end up tracing it it just kind of dissolves into lots and lots of different lines does that help does yes so jews are descendants of judah what makes it even more confusing is today we have the modern nation of israel but they're really all descendants from judah so yeah but what also happens is god still god still ties himself to the name israel even when the northern kingdom of israel ceases to exist so that does get a little bit confusing because god way back when the time of the patriarchs is the god of abraham isaac and jacob and you'll remember that after wrestling jacob he gives him the name israel the one who struggles with god and so that still that sense persists where it's a personal name for god the god of abraham isaac and jacob and he never forsakes that name israel even when israel itself technically ceases to exist that's a good question though because it does get confusing and other times i mean israel will go by other names completely different names sometimes as well and even Jerusalem in one point is called Ariel instead of Jerusalem so i mean you ha- sometimes you have to kind of keep track of all these different names so yeah so Israel as you can see from the Old Testament has always had enemies and um, there is always nation rising against nation and um, you can trace back um, we didn't talk about Ishmael but Ishmael was born to Abraham before Isaac and Isaac was the child of promise and this is an example what I talked about early where the story of the Old Testament and the Bible is very relentlessly focused on the line of Abraham through Isaac like that's the story and so yep there's other stuff that's happening but that's the story we need to be concerned with mm-hmm. yeah and ishmael's descendants is out, and you see that where descendants um see god shows grace to ishmael because ishmael could have died in the desert right but god says no because of my faithfulness to abraham you're going to survive and you're going to have descendants so that's the other interesting piece is god gives that promise to abraham and it was such a strong promise that even through ishmael there was lots of descendants and there was settling in the land and ultimately it's spread out to the nations so so that's kind of part of it so yeah that kind of runs in the background the whole this whole time where people who are not in that main story they become the Moabites or the Edomites and then they come back in as God wants them to come back in but the only reason they come back in is to influence this main story of Isaac's line Mm Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people do try to trace it back to Ishmael, at least, and then where the Edomites and Esau come in, again, it's somewhat up for debate, but it's not like a really neat and easy thing to determine. Again, the point is that Isaac is the child of promise, and that those promises are fulfilled through the line of Isaac. Again, that's why Matthew is ver- uh, very concerned at the start of his gospel. You go back, you go back right to Adam, but you go back to Adam through David, through Isaac, and through Abraham. Like that's the way you have to go back because that's the main thrust of the story. Yeah, but then uh, <laughs> when we wouldn't have this long book to read at night when we need to. <laughs> I think Mark wants to answer this question. <laughs> so, yeah, you want? Well, I can give you my my take first, yeah, and then you can batter it. So. Um, The question is, essentially, why is Isaac not the Messiah? Like, why not just have Isaac be the Messiah? Well, apart from the theological problems with Isaac not being the begotten son of God, then one of th- some of the other... <laughs> 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 some of the other things you would miss out on are highlights such as the law and, uh, and the, king, the kingdom of God. So... There we go. Yeah, and they're still discovering. I mean, one amazing thing is that we're the part of the world where all, this happ- all of this happened is the climate there preserves incredibly ancient artifacts in pristine conditions. So a lot of recent biblical scholarship, you know, it's based on recent finds. And so, um, you know, for example, um, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls that you may have heard about. Well, those were discovered in the late 1940s when a shepherd was, a little shepherd boy was looking for... You know, as animals, and was just passing the time and throwing rocks into a cave, and suddenly he hears a clay pot break, and he's like, "Oh, there's something in there!" And he goes in and discovers like the greatest collection of artifacts that we've ever found, of ancient documents. And so, there's probably a whole bunch of other stuff that's that's buried and yet to be found. But just there's so much archaeological historical evidence for, um, for all of this. So. Yeah, and in, in Galatians
0: 4:4, you know, Paul says that. It, it appropriate time. In Galatians 4.4, 4, uh, Paul says that, you know, at the appropriate time, God sent his son into the world. And we see um, something that I'm, we're going to touch on next week is how all kind of the, the circumstances of, you know, Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire and all the things that are happening that conspired to allow the the gospel to be spread quickly and easily throughout the empire, um, that just wouldn't have been possible, um, you know, back at any other time uh, before that. So there's, and we've been talking in youth group about the archaeological uh, proof and the historical um, uh, solidity that that Jesus actually existed, and he actually did the things that he said he did, you know, and, you know, just speaking of archaeological proof, it, it is amazing that that Christianity is based in in actual history, in actual proven facts. And I was actually having a discussion with a guy at, at work yesterday, and he's like, how can you say that, you know, Christianity is right, and, you know, that Buddhism is, is wrong, and that, you know, everybody just says they're right and everybody else is wrong. And I was able to say, well, here here is where God Know, literally uh, appears, and this is where he, he backs up what he's saying, you know, because we know that Jesus actually existed. We know that he actually did amazing, miraculous things that he said he did. And so I, th- I think that there is just a culmination of time in history uh, that allows Jesus to, to be birthed at the exact right moment as God ordained it. All right, well, th- thank you. Thank you. We're done. So thank you for coming. Uh, We look forward to uh, diving into the New Testament next week.